Welcome back, everybody. Hey, Fahim, what's going on? Trying a new audio setup tonight to try to cut down on uh, additional noise. So if my audio levels are off or something, just, just let me know. Someone hit me up. We are back for part two of what may be the most important series we've ever done on the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites, which is how to organize a union. No longer will you have to worry about organizing. You will know. You will be able to avoid all the memes and all the bullshit and empower yourself and your fellow workers. It's that time, baby. It is that time. We are taking it all the way to the union organization piece. And joining us again, the, the greatest human being to ever live on this planet. <laughs> ever. Ladies and gentlemen, Rika Hires. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you 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 do your thing. You do your thing, and uh, always appreciate every time you can join us. And I've I've been uh, I'm not gonna lie, I've been a little high since le- yesterday. Hey. Uh, on how I don't know something about it. I feel it feels good. It feels good to be trying to give people information to where they can actually do something practical about it. Absolutely. Uh, Schnarf says he wants to play a sound. Uh, would you like to let him on to play a sound real quick or no? It's probably just like a, a fart or something, I bet. But uh, what, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts here? Let him Why on. not? Why okay. not? Schnarf. Okay, Schnarf. Go ahead and play your sound. And we will go from there. Schnarf, go ahead. Play the sound, baby. What if I want to have sex before I get married? Well, I guess you just have to be prepared to die. <laughs> Thank you, Schnarf. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's good. Well, speaking of being prepared to die and having sex before you get married, um, if you really want to be able to fuck, form a union. Okay? That is, <laughs> that will absolutely increase your value on whatever the i don't know what are they <laughs> well it's by to that going. point actually um they're I, the union i'm working for right now we're like having conversations about how we can incorporate uh fertility benefits into our our into contract or, or like proposal language so because people don't have people aren't fucking and don't have the time to fucking have children <laughs> girl so uh, on a related yeah, note, about it. I, I swear to God, I had this conversation today with someone in my firm, and I was just thinking about the yesterday's episode all day because I'm at lunch uh, catching up with a coworker, and or or someone who works for a firm, um, we former coworker, whatever. But 
she just joined a firm and she is at, uh, she found out that she was pregnant uh, uh-huh. and turns out that their paternity leave benefits are just complete shit. And mm-hmm. I was sitting here the whole time she's talking about it. And we're talking about like how messed up that is and how she tried to go to HR and tried to basically go to all the avenues and no one was helping her. And the whole time I'm just thinking, yeah, what about, I wonder how different this would be if you had a union that could actually fight for this, that could actually uh, support you in this. And you could, you could lobby for that. So we got to talking, you know, we got to talking and all I'll Mm -hmm. say is this, I've been, it's, I have a feeling and hopefully this podcast is going to be part of that, but the feeling that people are, we're going to have to see a lot more people unionizing, engaging in collective action. And the squeeze is being felt by too many people. That's so right. it's, it's now or never, baby. It is now or never. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And you know, if like people feel that they, don't have the capacity while they're working or for, or part of a company or like for, in my instance, you got interns and residents who are, you know, working all these long hours uh, and are severely underpaid for the work that they do. Um, it makes the idea you just put off, you delay, you delay, you delay, you delay. Um, and at some point there has to be a compromise, you know, like if the, if the work con- working conditions are such that, people feel like they either can't have children uh, or because of the nature of the work that they do or their, or their employers are being shitty, then yeah, people are going to have to stand up and force the employer to do something about it. And I think the, that's, that is the power of a union though. It's, it's coming together to make those changes happen. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and God, the, the fact that you have to, the fact that without a union or the fact that without some kind of pushback, some mm-hmm. kind of pushback that employers are willing to basically work you to such a point to where you cannot even have children. Mm-hmm. You cannot afford it. You cannot time-wise, you can't deal with it. It's, it's pretty dystopian. You know, it's, 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 it really goes to show how much you can become just like a cog in the wheel of someone else's machine. That's and right. How you are, you are literally just a function, a necessary evil for them to make money. Mm-hmm. They do not care, you know, and I think, you know, I think enough's enough. I think there has to be some point where you, you revolt against that. And today we're talking about unions. Maybe next time you're on, we'll talk about how to organize a, uh, a violent insurrection. <laughs> <laughs> offline, <laughs> offline, <laughs> offline. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, we got, we got, uh, we got uh, part two today. So Rico, how about we go over what we discussed during yep- yesterday's episode, which is up for anyone who missed it. Uh, we have the, the first parts of how step-by-step you organize a union. And we'll, we'll do a little brief recap here, and then we'll get into tonight's episode. Um, so let's go step by step. Uh, Rika, first step to organizing a union or the broad overview again. What are the, the main steps that people need to take in order to organize 
a union and negotiate their first contract? That's right. Well, the first step is building majority support for a union in your work workplace. And then after that, it's going public and getting voluntary recognition or uh, winning filing for an election. And then it's winning that election. And then it's negotiating and ratifying your first contract. So broadly, that's, that's the path to creating your union, uh, getting a union. Within that, within the phase of building majority support, you know, you're, you're forming an organizing committee of people who want to hold down the campaign, getting a list of people that you think are going to be in the union based off of their um, job classification, um, and ideally it's broad. And then you go about the business of having a ton of conversations, one-on-one -on -one conversations with people to get them to sign union authorization cards and a public petition of support for forming a union. You then take all of that energy, you go march on the boss, demand voluntary uh -huh. recognition. And if they don't give you voluntary recognition there and then, we're kind of turning our, our attention to uh, galvanizing outside pressure, uh, getting the public's eyes and ears on your campaign, uh, and trying to push them to voluntarily recognize your union, all while you move forward to file for an election. Right, right. So it is, uh, again, it's an inside-outside strategy. Uh, mm. When you're building the majority support in the beginning, you're having a lot of those one-on-one -on -one conversations, like you said. You're being sneaky. You're doing your power mapping. You are figuring out who are going to be allies, who are going to be people who can form an organizational committee for later um, when you have to organize the, the wider workplace or the, uh, the people who are going to be part of the union. Uh, when we talked about the union authorization cards and everything, don't worry. There are examples of those online, everybody. Just look up your state or your, your area and Google union authorization cards. You'll find plenty of examples, but they are a legal requirement for uh, actually forming a union. Uh, you need at least 30% of the workers who are going to make up the union in order to uh, force an election. However, as Rika was saying yesterday too, you want to have more like 80% uh, because the tactics that the employer is going to use once they most likely voluntarily choose not to recognize or when they choose not to voluntarily recognize your union, uh, the employer the employer is going to take some um, some fuckboy steps after that to try to yeah. really eliminate support, to really try to stop the momentum that you may have, to try to uh, crush morale early. Uh, so you're going to expect some drop off by the time you get to the election. Uh, after you've built the majority support, after you've gone pub public, or as we were calling it yesterday, when you've rolled up on the on the boss uh, and you've made this big you know, uh, rage against the machine moment, uh, this, uh, taking it back, this Antoine Fisher moment that you have, um, you know, in front of him, uh, you, you are going to have these, op or, or what's going to happen is before the election happens, the employer is going to have these captive audience meetings. They're going to, uh, try to really push people, dole out a bunch of misinformation about, 
the union or what being in a union means, really try to disparage your unionization efforts. Uh, we talked about some tactics to interrupt those efforts, wearing your union pins around. An employer cannot discriminate against you for wearing a union pin, uh, which means they can't fire you. They can't like admonish you or anything for wearing a union pin. Uh, doesn't mean they won't. It just means that legally you're protected. Uh, they, uh, you know, if you're in those captive audience meetings, eat your popcorn, eat your plantain chips, really be loud, really don't let that misinformation, you know, be, be like, uh, you know, be petty, be petty with it. Stop the meeting from happening, have a campaign and have a plan to combat uh, that misinformation that you're going to be getting from the employers, that the employers are going to be giving to the other employees. Uh, make sure that you kind of, the people who you are having signed union authorization cards and the people who are forming your organizing committee and the people who you're trying to galvanize and unionize, make sure that you have, you know, some frank conversations about what kind of opposition you're going to have uh, or, or encounter when you're trying to unionize because you're trying to basically uh, harden them and, and prepare them for some of these tactics, which can be scary uh, and which can, you know, have an effect on uh, morale and can cause people to, to drop out. Um, so, you know, just preparing people with those kinds of conversations and everything beforehand. Uh, am I, are we, are we missing anything or are we perfect? I think we're so close to being perfect. So okay. the, the key, another key element when you're initially organizing, you want to, the, the word is mom, until you're ready to go public. Um, mm -hmm. You want to make sure that the, you're doing your due diligence to, to have these conversations quietly and away from the earshot of uh, your supervisor or anybody in management until you are ready to actually march on the boss and uh, go public broadly. And then at that point forward, you, uh, the louder, stronger, um, more numbers you have, more visible you have, once you're public, you, once you've marched on the boss, the greater demonstration of presence you have, the least likely the employer is there to mess around with you because they don't want to take that on. So being loud, visible, and proud is the way to be. Perfect, perfect. Um, and again, there's, tonight we'll get into some of the laws, a little more about the law of like what employers can and can't do, uh, doesn't mean legally, but we also want to get into really the, the really next big steps for organizing the union. So after you have, uh, you know, uh, built up majority support within the, uh, your employer, so among the employees, you've built up majority support, you've got the union authorization cards and you've done everything else you need before you go public. And then after you've gone public and we've talked about everything you do after you go public, the next step is the election. Mm -hmm. And plenty to talk about with the election. Um, as we, we all know, uh, elections can be a time where there's a lot of turmoil <laughs> of uh, there are going to be a lot of we've seen what people will do to win political elections um, in that with more 
direct consequences on the the underlying uh, uh, paycheck or the underlying like uh, profit of a company. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of pushback with this, but I don't want to don't want to make it all pushback. Rika, why don't you tell us a little bit about the election process and the uh, I guess the, the strategies for ensuring that you can win the unionization election and some yes. of the basics around how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's talk about the technical stuff real quick. So when you're when your employer says, hey, sorry, we're not going to recognize your union, we're going to force you to an election, you have to file your union authorization cards with either the PERB or the NLRB. Um, and there's usually like a regional office for the NLRB. And if you're a public employee, you're going to be going to your local office with PERB there. And so you file these cards or copies of these cards uh, with uh, the corresponding forms. And then what's going to happen is an NLRB agent will reach out to you or someone who's designated to um, on those forms uh, to kind of arrange a meeting with a representative from the employer to go over and make sure that the community of interest is that as defined as you define on those forms is correct. Um, and then to try to determine an actual date for an election and the process for how the election will occur, whether or not it will right. be a mail-in ballot or in person on site somewhere, et cetera. So right. and, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, and we talked about the community of interest a little bit, but, Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, just to remind everybody, the community of interest are all the people who can rightfully sort of be in a union together. Um, so it is a group that you are basically trying to unionize. Uh, and I don't know if you want to elaborate on that more, Rika, or if that's... Yeah, just that's briefly, important. just briefly, your community of interest just really defines who's in and who's out of the bargaining unit, mostly who's in, who's covered, who's going to be covered by the, by the contract that you all uh, uh, negotiate for and fight for. So um, it's important that we, what we talked about yesterday is that you really consider making it as broad as possible, because at this point with the election, the employer is going to scrutinize that list and try to kick people out of your unit based on some arguments they're going to put forward. Um, right. And so th the this point in the game, it's really, really important to have kind of your ducks in a row um, to really clearly illustrate why you believe everyone is in a um, falls under the community of interest as you've defined it. Uh, there are arguments that sometimes employers will put forth is that um, they don't do the same work or they don't have. Um, any shared interests, they don't interact with each other, uh, they're off at different sites. And none of those uh, honestly hold a whole lot of water uh, to really pushing people out because ultimately you can, you, you can, you just need to clearly state that we all work together and our, our work impacts each other and we're, we all have a shared interest in and are equally impacted by the company here that we're, they're the employer that we're working for. Um, but you know, your employer will try to make, the boss will try to make statements like that. Um, right. And they'll also, they'll also probably try to call people out as being supervisors, as having the ability to right. hire and fire people. 
Um, right. And so it's important is, is that, and you know, as you're going through that process that you have, you know, documentation of job descriptions of people that are being called into question, um, you know, any examples of how or of that limit the scope of what people have been able to do within their work or examples right. of how people exactly. do work together. But, and it, we're getting really into the weeds there, but the point is, is that the this period of the election before you actually set a date you you're gonna the employer will use this opportunity to drag out the timeline as much as possible um, good lord they try, will yeah yeah they really will and they'll try to make it so you have to wait for months and months and months before you have an election um, the, the 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 strategy that i've seen and you can you can let me know if this is the same with you rika but what i see is like there's two main strategies, or I guess three big words. It's delay, divide, and conquer. That's, That's right. what you do. If you're an employer, delay, 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 so that people get tired. Because look, big old employer, they're not worried about, you, they're not worried in the same way about like the, the effects of delaying, uh, even making money to some extent, right? Like if you talk about, a unionization process that's going over months and months and months, uh, people will naturally just kind of lose interest. People mm -hmm. will have life shit come up and will just kind of fall off. Uh, people will become more and more concerned about the fact that they are economically destitute or that they don't have a, um, you know, uh, the same sort of financial security that, uh, they would like to have and that losing their job could be completely, you know, could be addition, like super detrimental to their already sort of destitute position. So they'll get scared. Uh, so the delay works for that. And the divide and conquer, like when we're talking about these, um, these, you know, community of interest uh, issues with a union, a lot of the times when employers are making these uh allegations that the people that you're trying to have unionized don't have a community of interest or don't share a community of interest. They don't really, it's a bad faith critique. They don't get it. They're just trying to That's divide right. you. Yep. Uh, again, the, the, those things all work to the advantage of the employer. So the delayed divide and conquer. Um, but that's really the, the, the main uh, gist of the strategy that you're going to find uh, that's going to be opposing you. Yes, absolutely. And so it's important, uh, you know, as we kind of beat the drum last night to be really ready to answer uh, with collective actions to the ridiculousness and behavior or any communication that the employer has to you all, uh, because we, you want to, you don't want to leave those statements, questions or comments unanswered. Otherwise, that kind of they kind of take control of the narrative of what is true and what's not true in terms of your campaign. And that is certainly true for things that are said during these NLRB meetings with the, with the regional directors. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're delaying, but how much they try to delay, you know, eventually the election will come. Yes. Uh, and to that point, you know, the, just as a note, the NLRB agents, their, you know, their goal is to try to get this election to happen as quickly as possible. And they will try to force compromises to happen 
in the sake of kind of moving forward in the process, right? So that's just something to be aware of in conversations with people. Their their goal is to get this this election to happen. And obviously uh, under more labor union or labor friendly administrations, uh, those people will tend to support uh, unions a little bit more, but 90, you can 90, 90% of the time they're, they're gonna try to support uh, the employer and big business and big money, which is why it is so, so important to as much as possible fight for voluntary recognition. Right, right, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, voluntary recognition is the, would be best in just about every situation. Um, mm-hmm. The problem is employers don't want to do it. That's right. So and go ahead. Well, so, you know, you talked about an election will happen. So at some point in the conversation, you will decide on a date and a time for an election to happen and the process for it to happen. And this is critical. After that point, you only have, I think it's uh, a week or two weeks. I can't remember which, but you'll only have a short window of time to get people really ready and prepared to either mail in their ballots or go and vote in person uh, at, at whatever site you all agree upon. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I cannot remember if it's a week or two weeks either, but this is a critical sort of another kind of strategy that you see that works a lot of the times for employers is they want to uh, do what you'll see people do with political elections, which is lower turnout. Uh, They don't want everybody who can vote to vote. and I think, I mean, that ends up benefiting them. Uh, is that is that right, Rico? Yeah, it's total voter suppression tactics all the way. Right. You know, exactly what we see with our general elections. You'll, you'll see very similar kind of tactics, you know, putting, trying to put the voting location somewhere where, like, it's really, really hard to find for some stupid reason. Even though you aren't going to agree to it, they're going to try to do that. They're going to make they're going to try to make it confusing, try to push for a time when people right. aren't actually available to go vote. So yeah, they're, they're, they're whole, they're at this point, it's a matter of turnout. When you're at the election point, the goal is to turn out support and all of the people that said that they were going to vote. Yes. That signed up those union authorization cards. And so their goal is to make sure that they, that you don't get that simple majority, which is just, 51% of people right. to vote in favor of the union. Right, right. The, the, and the best way to really get people to turn up or turn out is to turn up, is to That's right. try to keep the energy high. Uh, and again, this goes back a lot into the preparation of what you have to prepare people for. Uh, let them know what they're going to, what kind of forces are going to be op- uh, opposing them. Uh, and, you know, do activities and do things that are fun. Uh, I mean, like, I don't, do you have any examples of like fun shit that you do with your union buds when you're trying to <laughs> get an election going? Like any fun union games or something? Well, yeah, it's funny. You would think that there were fun union games, but there aren't. But none that I've done. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, yeah, yeah. Most, most of the time at this point, it's like, oh shit, we gotta really just get a hold of people and make sure they're gonna vote yes in the election and that they've submitted their ballots and they know exactly where to do it. So right. what, and so what people have done in the past and what we've done is, you know, you have people uh, willingly kind of share uh, their, like if you're in like a large group uh, messaging app or chat, whatever, uh, and you have a bunch of people that are supportive in it. Uh, people can voluntarily show, take pictures of themselves, not of their ballot, but of themselves, like voting right. yes for the for the uh, for the union, and and then posting it and being like, "Hey, I voted yes for the union," or you know, even just sending messages like that, just to say, because what you know, what you you can't do is you can't flat out intimidate people into voting yes for the election. But what you can do is you can be very very outspoken in terms of your support and voting yes for the election right. and so a lot of people will do activities that put that kind of on display so an example too is let's say you're going to vote on site you're going to you're going to be responsible for getting bringing you and like five other people to go vote at a particular time and you're all going to wear the color green right to right. show that right. you're voting yes in the affirmative and then all of you right. do is you see this sea of green just walking toward the ballot box to make sure that, you know, you're demonstrating that there's all this vocal support. Um, so, yeah, so it's just really about trying to, uh, at this point, to, the, what, to quote unquote make it fun is to find creative ways that demonstrate that people have voted in favor of the union. Um, That's such an important point. That's such an important point, Rika, because look, uh, let's just get back into the psychology of what it is to be a worker who is voting for a union a lot of the times, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, you are about to basically do something in voting for a union that you know your employer does not want you to do, and now there's going to be a record of it. That's right. If you feel like you're doing that on an island, that can be a really scary decision. And a lot of the times, people who may support a union, who do want to be able to collectively bargain. They'll get scared because they'll see themselves as an individual versus Amazon. And then mm -hmm. they'll say, well, then I better, I better vote against this. So at least I'll be able to keep my job. At least Amazon will see that I did not support the union, even if, you know, those votes aren't going to be public, but they're, they're, they're public enough though. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're asking an individual to make that decision. It's a lot harder for an individual to stand up against uh, any kind of injustice. It's a lot easier whenever you see people who are doing the same, whenever you feel like you have your comrades in arms who support the same thing that you do. So, you know, maybe green's not your color. Maybe wear black. I don't know. Whatever you're going to wear, though, uh, show people that that they are not alone that they can also be brave and that they can, um, that there are a lot of people who think that they should have some basic uh, rights in their workplace and the ability to determine the, uh, some of the most basic parts of their own lives. And I'll, I'll keep going back to that railroad, uh, sorry, the rail, railway worker example, where a lot of what they were, they've been asking for, uh, with their union drives is just days off, you know, mm -hmm. such a mm -hmm. basic, <laughs> such a basic want just to have a little Absolutely. bit of your own time in your own life to yourself. So, 
showing people that they're not alone. Again, these big demonstrations or these these things to keep the energy up, at least these things to show people that uh, there are other people who are going to be brave too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when at the point in which you're ready to have the election too, you've at that point should have done all the work of mapping out who who's connected to who, where people's support lies. You know, all, all along the way, whenever you take an action, you're using that as a way to measure engaged support. And you are literally tracking by list with your list of people who did what, who turned out and signed, uh, did like a picture and a quote that you posted on your Twitter that demonstrated that they are supportive of the union, who signed the union authorization card, who showed up at march on the boss who's on the organizing committee right you're taking every every opportunity for people to take action and in, right. in support of your union you're using that as a tracker of sorts to gauge and measure your support and right. exactly. that's going to be in, and that's important because you don't want to leave this to theoretical abstract notions of oh yeah, yeah yeah we got this we got this right right no it's a numbers Girl. game. <laughs> it's a numbers game. It's, it's literally a numbers, numbers. game. Yeah, it's because yeah. It, look, those those brought like eventually it comes down to brass tacks. That's it. That's right. You know, mm-hmm. it, you either have the numbers or you don't. And mm-hmm. if you don't, you at least have a year until you can hold the next union election. Unless someone did something that was illegal, you're at least waiting a year and trying to reinvigorate a group of people that you just tried to unionize a year later after a failed election. Uh, Oof. Oof. I shudder to think. <laughs> I think, you know, an example, maybe a real world world example uh, of some kinds is kind of Nina Turner's campaign with Summer, Summer Lee. I don't know how many people were following that. Uh, I don't know what everyone's opinions are about Nina Turner. I don't know that much about her, but the first time that she ran for uh, Congress. She was running for an open house seat in uh, near the Cleveland area of Ohio. Mm -hmm. Uh, She did better than the second time. And the first time it was a hard sort of corporate Democrat candidate that she was going against uh, was close, but not close enough. And it was to to fill out the remainder of the, the congressperson who retired, the remainder of her seat. Uh, by the time the election came back up, it was only it only been like a year or something. It hadn't been long, maybe even shorter. Mm-hmm. But Nina Turner yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and the districts had been redrawn in a way to where mm-hmm. a lot of the areas where Nina Turner fared the best, she could have done. Uh, those were more of those districts were now uh, included in this vote for mm-hmm. uh, this Congress seat. And she lost worse the second time. Yep. And, Energy, especially when you are the underdog, energy is very, very important. And it is, I I mean, when you think about it, it makes sense. Should I, can I get a little philosophical for a second here? (laughs) Why not? It's your podcast. for a second. (laughs) So, so we're talking about collective action. And we're typically talking about collective action from people who have learned helplessness okay, who feel these huge powers that have these huge influences on their lives as individuals and feel helpless to stop them. Mm -hmm. 
to get someone out of that to believe in something greater, it takes something, right? Because their view of the world is already, well, look, I'm getting fucked and there's nothing Mm -hmm. I can do about it. That's why people don't vote in this country. And there's like, you know, there's there's a real argument that people can actually make too, that, well, it doesn't matter if I vote or not. It doesn't matter. That feeds into the system that is already in existence, right? It feeds into, and even if it's completely logical, it, it, to, to feel that way, it feeds into this system where these people who already have power, who make your life a living hell, uh, are perfectly fine with doing that because you are you don't have the energy to to go against them so Mm -hmm. to convince people that no there can be a different way to convince them to come together and then for that to wind up in failure it is a difficult you can imagine the the effect that that would have on your psyche i mean look uh, 2016 bernie campaign is a good example of that too um There are plenty of examples because we live in a capitalist hell and (laughs) this stuff just happens. But again, I I really think it's important to to try to make people, if you are really asking people to take, to believe in like something, it's really like to to believe in miracles in a way. Uh, And even though it's not a miracle, I mean, it's... just something pretty normal. But you can imagine how you want to get it right the first time. If you promise someone something, if you say things can be different, the worst thing that can happen is if shit just stays the same. Uh, I, I think that's such an important point, which is why you will see people before you, if you do not have the numbers as you're going about this process, you do not file yes. for an election. Yes. It, you do not file for an election. If you do not have, uh, if you can't count on getting over that 51% to vote, you pull the election um, and then you just reorganize because you don't want to have to uh, go through a process where you, where you lose. And then also when you lose, the employer is going to, they're going to showboat and they're going to go after people. So it's, that's what happens. It's, it's, yep. Yeah. And there, there's, yeah. go ahead, go ahead, please. Well, the, the thing that I, I think what you described so brilliantly is just the, the huge threshold that we have in general to uh, organizing and winning, right. Both psychologically, culturally, socially, and, uh, to kind of get at that, to get over it, you know, the whole process that we've outlined when we're talking about the collective actions that people do, that helps chip away at those obstacles. And one way you kind of, you start chipping away at that within the election portion of this campaign is by having, again, by returning and having those one-on-one conversations with people. Uh, You want to make sure that in those follow-up conversations, this is before the election happens, um, and even after the election date is issued, you're talking with them, you're reevaluating them, reassessing them, reassessing their right. support, and you're inc- making sure that they have the information they need to vote, and they're hearing from you that you're going to vote yes in the election, and that you're going to ask them point blank, can we count on you to 
continue to support forming a union, right? And, and that, that is so important because we can't, again, we can't rely on the theory and the abstract. And if people are seeing and meeting real people who work in their workplace, talking with them about how, how and why they're going to, they're going to take this big risk with you, this big action with you. And they know that they got support. They're more likely to do it. They're more likely to join. you. Absolutely. And that is where we, as people who are part of a collective, will Mm -hmm. always have the advantage. I cannot express that enough. An employer is not going to sit down with each one of the people of their employees, hold their hand and tell them, you know, I care. I really care about you. I really want, I'm going to make sure that you get the best health care and just everything's going to be good for you. Like they are alienated as, as the bosses. They will always be, in this position, you know, Howard Schultz coming around for Starbucks and trying to tell people that he cares about them. Like, motherfucker, where were you a couple months ago? They had to bring your stupid ass back to come mm-hmm. over here and start to talk to us when we started to unionize. And then suddenly, as soon as it's about to affect your bottom line, oh, now you feel some type of way. Now you feel like you want to come and tell the employees how much you care about them. Mm-hmm. You will always have, you as an employee trying to uh, to to organize other people who are in a similar position as you will always be able to have heart to hearts with people on that because mm-hmm. you're in the same shit, right? You're in the you're in the trenches together. So do not underestimate the power of that. I know that sometimes um, I don't know. I, I think that is undervalued sometimes today, as far as by by people as to how powerful that face to face human to human connection can really be. And how pe- you can you can get a lot of people, despite their political uh, views or whatever else, to to work together because mm-hmm. of trust, which you can build. I mean, Chris Smalls is another good example. There are a lot of people who are not of the same. Probably wouldn't hang out with Chris Smalls at like a I don't know. They they probably don't vote the same way as Chris Smalls. They probably have a lot of differences probably not from the same neighborhoods or whatever but they trusted chris smalls they really did and they trusted the people who are on that organization uh, committee with him and look what it did so please do not underestimate the gauging people face-to-face connections the the human part because uh capitalism can be an inhuman system and showing like the humanity is always going to be an advantage that we will have over them. But I don't know why I'm getting so like fucking fired up about this girl. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like I'm you're ready to form your union, vibe. That's know, what it sounds like. <laughs> I'm honest, honestly, I'm mad about like what I was hearing today from mm. the, I mean, how are you going to be this, this girl, she's an attorney who she did all the things that you're supposed to do in order to be like, to make it. And here she is saying about to have like a C-section and her employer Mm -hmm. is saying, sorry, we can only give you six weeks to get to know your kid. And then you have to come back. And some of the shit her firm said in response to that is so fucking disgusting and stupid. The way the HR department is saying, 
This is seriously something they said to her, Rika. And this is someone who is in the PMC or whatever, right? She's she's paying her bills. They could buy a house. But even her, this is what they were saying to her. This is HR, okay? She goes up and talks about it. And they go, well, does your husband have any paternity leave? And they said, she said, well, yeah, he has, you know, he has more than her. He has like 20 weeks or whatever because they work for different uh, firms. And literally the, the head of HR says to her, oh, well, then he'll be able to help you with it. Like, suck my dick. Really? <laughs> really? That's the fucking response? That's the fucking yeah. response? And this is what, like, her ability to make other people money is really all they fucking care about. She's a That's number. Right. She is a goddamn motherfucking number. And the, 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 the fact that, like, having a response like that is even seen as sane to me is is the problem and that's where they have the disadvantage is when you treat people like numbers when you see people as numbers and that's it you you miss them you really miss them so please again do not underestimate this face-to-face shit do not underestimate like the trust that you can build and again it's not just you it's you and the organizational committee and all the people who it's, it's the pay it forward approach, right? It is right. The, the web of trust that you create, which again mm-hmm. is why when we're talking about the planning and everything, be strategic, be patient, be diligent with this. But once you build yeah. that net, uh, it's a net. It's going to catch any of that bullshit that's going to be coming from the, from the employers. So. Yeah. And it's really, and at that moment too, it's an all hands on deck moment, right? You know, everyone, Mm -hmm. everyone on your organizing committee should be calling people left and right to make sure that they're, you know, got their information, got their ballot and that they're ready to go and ready to vote for the union. Right. And um, again, because it comes down to numbers, you are, as you're doing this, you are literally tracking who who said yes? Who's who's got? Who did we call? What did they say? Um, because you don't want to leave it up to chance, uh, because mm-hmm. the stakes are really really high, uh, both uh, emotionally and materially. So, absolutely, absolutely. And also remember, we've talked about this before. We talked about it in part one. Uh, you want you want to have you want to track this information too, because employers will do some fuck yep. shit. That's the official legal term for it is some fuck shit because <laughs> look, there are plenty of things that are illegal for employers to do here there. It's illegal for them to tell you how to vote. It's illegal for them to promise benefits for non-union workers that, uh, and withholding them from people who are trying to unionize or who are part of a union. It's illegal for them to make threats based on your support of the union. It's illegal for them to fire you for showing support with the union. But remember, as we talked about last episode, these are these corporations are making different calculations than you. The fact that it's illegal means that they can do it, and then they'll get in trouble or or whatever later down the line. It takes some time for these cases to get to the NLRB. It takes some time to start that process. It takes some time for a judge to look at what they did, to hear all the evidence, and then say, yeah, what you did is illegal. 
and then penalize them. And time, remember, remember one of the tactics that these employers are using, delay. It actually works to their favor a lot of these times. Delay, delay, delay. They do something illegal. Now you're in a battle over the illegal action that they did. They delayed the union election or uh, they're repeating a union election that they did something illegal the first time and now we have to have another election. All of that works to the benefit of the employer. So, mm -hmm. and if they feel like, and, and these are cold economic calculations. Again, remember who they have on retainer. They have high powered law firms. They have mm -hmm. consulting firms whose entire job, entire consulting firms exist in this country that specialize in just crushing union efforts. How fucked up is that? That we have an entire industry of bitch ass niggas who is just their <laughs> whole job, for real, Rika, their whole yeah. fucking existence is just making sure that you and your coworkers can't collectively organize in order to get the maternity leave to spend some time with your kids. That's their whole That's fucking right. job. And guess what? They make good money and they're good at it. That's how, and they'll pay that. Employers will pay that because cold economic calculations, just numbers. It's cheaper to pay these people their stupid ass salaries to bust your shit up as long as they can continue to have you uh, cranking out widgets and gidgets and whatever the hell alone without your collective yeah. action. You know, actually, sometimes it's not cheaper. It's actually more expensive than if you would have just pay people a living wage. <laughs> Girl, that's the other you know, thing. That's so I, they God. like that's and it's important when you find out this information. Like if you find out what law, um, uh, anti-union law, law firm, yeah. they they go to, or you want to put them on blast and you want to figure out put them who on those blast. people are. Um, and, you know, you can generally find information about how much people paid to uh, cover the cost of these lawyers. Uh, sometimes there's articles written about them. So you can That's kind right. of you know, put that information out there. And uh, it's astounding because at the end of the day, Biden, right, it's, it, you know, it's what you're fundamentally doing when you're forming a union in your workplace is you're changing the balance of power, the equation of power. Yes. And, you yes. know, bosses don't want to give up that power. They like being able to tell you when to jump and how high to jump. Yeah. Yeah. They love it. And that, that's, that's the best way to put it. You are challenging the foundations and the organization of power itself. That 100%. is, we, and, and I, I, I will keep bringing up Game of Thrones examples, but you all see what these motherfuckers are all doing for that throne. Y'all see what it is. It is people, and I don't understand the cycle. I don't, you know, Rika, we could talk probably forever about why people who are already worth millions and millions and millions of dollars still feel the need to squeeze people, like why they can't relinquish some power. I, I won't, I, I have a hard time understanding that, but the reality is, they will they will do whatever it takes to maintain that power for whatever yeah. reasons that it is right like well some some people depend it depends on the person sometimes uh you know people take it personally they think that's a uh, people wanting to form a union is a personal attack on their 
ability to manage a company or an organization and exactly. they, they feel like it's like a personal failure and so they they have this ego that's invested in supporting the union and then other people are just ideologically driven uh to oppose the unions because they believe that a business should operate in such a way where people are wage slaves pretty much so um yeah so it's it's a it's a thing and i think the important point to remember is just that this, you know, going back, you've done at the point of which you're actually executing an election, you should have and better have done all the work to figure out that you have the numbers on your side to turn up and to turn out. Yes, yes. And some of the strategies that we've talked about too, um, besides organizing events, keeping the energy high, doing whatever you can to keep the energy high, having these one-on-one conversations with people, um, tracking, tracking these things, you know, tracking the yes votes, getting people not to show their ballots after they vote yes for the union, but getting people to, you know, post, make a post or something, just voted for my union, just, just, you know, anything that is public support from the people who are supporting the union, get that out there. You want people, you don't want people to feel alone. You don't want people to feel isolated. You want them to feel part of something because guess what? If this union election goes through, they will be part of something. And that's what's important. You need psychologically reinforcing that in every way, shape and form that we can. Um, We talked about wearing green or wearing like having mass movements of people who are all going to the voting booths at the same time and all wearing green or some outfit to all show that they're in solidarity with one another. These sort of powerful, sort of, some of them are more symbolic than others, some of these gestures, but any of these things that you can show to make people feel less isolated, to make them feel more confident that they're going to win, to make people feel, to get that snowball to continue to avalanche down, baby, and become a big old snow boulder, you know, or what's bigger than a boulder, like a big old snow Big thing, you know, like big old snow thing. <laughs> big old snow thing. Yeah, get that big old snow thing. That's what you go for. <laughs> but that's that's really what you're trying to do, right? And then union election, it happens. Is there any, as far as what you do to try to win the election, is there anything else that we should discuss here, Rika? Honestly, no, because I think all the other details about what you say, when you say it, who needs to contact who, et cetera, you're going to determine that in your organizing committees and uh, you'll, you'll figure out other creative ways to uh, turn people up and out. So uh, the, the big, the big thing is, is when you win and you will win when you get to that point, when you win, you have to celebrate. You absolutely have to celebrate. You have to go out, go party, you have to make a press release announcement. You have to make it so that everybody knows that you just whooped the employer's ass, that you just yep. turned up and turned out and you won your union. Hey. You gotta get that <laughs> fucking energy up, baby. It's got... This should be you after the union. That's right. The whole, the whole thing. <laughs> Damn, that's a that's a good song. That's a good. That's ass great. Song. That's perfect. But that's what it has to be. You have to keep that energy up, that motherfucking energy, because uh, 
first of all, because you just did something remarkable. You went from step one of being under the foot of an employer, of having no say in really anything in your workplace, from a bunch of individuals who are disconnected from one another, to a group that can now collectively bargain. That's pretty sick. That's right? awesome. That's sick. Uh, you've And in this society, you've shown people that they can go from powerlessness to having some power. And that's infectious. That can continue. Uh, you can yes. build on that, that snowball to make that big snow thing that we're trying to make. Uh, <laughs> but that's great. Um, but what, what are, Rico, what are some of the other reasons why we should celebrate? And Jason, I see you down there. We will get to questions. We're, we're almost about done. We'll get to questions uh, after this. So anyone who has questions about this, please call in. Yeah. That's why we're here. But go ahead, Rika. What what are the reasons you have to celebrate? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, you like you exactly what you said, Bide. You just you just won. You won a formally recognized union in your workplace. You now have the ability to. Uh, you will no longer have to, or, or be subject to the complete whims of the employer. They now have to work with you, you and your colleagues to define your uh, working conditions and to make sure that your needs are met, which, you know, in most cases, people don't have that. They don't have that in their workplace. And so they're just, they, they go in, they go in for an interview. They're told what they're going to get paid. They're told that it's non-negotiable, take it or leave Mm -hmm. it. And people take it because they have no other choice. And all of a sudden you're opening up the space of possibility and that alone, you now have real ass power in your workplace that is worth celebrating. Right. And it's important to celebrate loudly too, because you may, you have no idea whether or not you're going to be inspiring other workers and in similar industries or workplaces who are thinking about it, considering it, uh, who are having those initial conversations like you did. And they see that win, it's going to inspire them to go continue forward and organize you know, there Absolutely. is something about the idea of waves of unionization. When I was in Minneapolis, when we would go public Absolutely. after our elections, the nonprofits would come out the woodwork saying, hey, we're ready for a union. 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 So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, an important, it's an important thing to be public and visible with your win. Not only so uh, you can shove it in the face of the employer, which is always yeah. a good thing to do. But yeah. it's Fuck also them. important. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> eat shit. Eat shit, boss. But the, the <laughs> other thing <laughs> the other thing is, is that you are gonna give and buoy the, the efforts that other uh people are are engaging in uh that you don't even know. And that's that's important. It's so important for movement work. Uh a million billion jillion percent. Uh especially the snowball effect that you can have on other people trying to organize their unions. Let's look at an example happening right now with Starbucks, okay? Mm -hmm. Starbucks, I think the first one that they unionized was in Buffalo, New York. No other stores. There were no, uh, before the pandemic, there, to my knowledge, were no unionized Starbucks stores. None. Now, how many are there? Something like, is, is it up to like 50? I don't know if it's quite that, but like, I've definitely lost track. There was, there was <laughs> to, the fact that we've lost track of the number of Starbucks stores that have unionized 
is sick. That is a good sign. The fact that we can't even count all of the numbers of, or maybe we're just really bad at keeping up with the news. I don't know. <laughs> like the fact that there are so many now to where it's happening all across the country, these Starbucks stores that are unionizing. And the same is true with a lot of the other unionization efforts that are going on too. I mean, if you look at the Amazon labor union that they organized, and I know they've, they've had some um, troubles with organizing other stores, but the amount of people that Chris Small says have reached out to him and their labor organization just to figure out how did you guys do it? How did you, who want to be part of it, who want to also replicate that success is huge. So, mm -hmm. and you know, I know a lot of people have talked about the power that a general strike and that things like that can have. I think, I think that becomes more and more of a, uh, the, the, the reality of accomplishing something like a general strike becomes more and more real or more and more feasible. Uh, less, of, I guess, uh, I don't know, less imaginary, less like of a high hope of a pipe dream, the more and more people That's right. who have collectively organized, uh, the more and more people who have successfully started unions and that kind of solidarity, holy shit, you can imagine that would be uh, revolutionary. It could be revolutionary. 100%. And the more people that form unions, the more support you're likely to get when you enter your negotiations, right? Because they're going to be going through a very similar process. So, and let's, I think, let's talk about that process and negotiate. Oh, yeah. sorry. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I thought it was going to be real slick and have like a real nice transition there. And no, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, I was just saying, I, I, we talked a little bit last episode about how important it is to recognize that the unionization effort does not end after the election and how you have to run through that motherfucking finish line. And the first of those finish lines is negotiating your first contract. Yup. So yep. let's, let's talk a little bit about negotiating and ratifying your first contract. Uh, Rico, why don't you just, uh, what is negotiating your first union contract? What what does that really mean for those of us who have never been in a union? Yeah, this is the collective bargaining moment. This is where mm -hmm. you and your organizing committee um, will start to transition into a negotiations team. You'll bring people together who are interested in meeting with the employer uh, literally sit down across from a table from them or in most cases now uh, join a Zoom call and have mm -hmm. conversations with them about what your terms of and uh, your work your your working conditions should be um, to develop that contract that basically outlines the and governs uh, policies surrounding your uh, your employment. So this mm -hmm. is the meat and potatoes of why we why we do what we do uh, is to enshrine your benefits and your rights as a worker in a contract. So, That's right. um, but you know, the first step really is to, you know, you got to get that negotiations team together and you got to get it together pretty quickly. And in many cases, people are already kind of a voicing uh, prior to the elections, whether or not they're interested in being on the negotiations team. Right. Um, 
And then what you're going to do is you're going to then survey all of your new members about their uh, bargaining or negotiation priorities. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. So I was going to say with the one thing about the negotiations team, uh, these are just to be very clear. These are going to be the people who are in that Zoom call or who are sitting across the table from the employers, right? This is like the vanguard of people who are going to be looking the employers in their eyes, eye to eye, and coming up with the terms of what the union is willing to work for and what they're not. Um, so uh, oftentimes, I know that you, you noted here in the notes, too, that members of your organizational committee, the organizing committees who were, you know, very... Uh, who already have been uh, instrumental in organizing the union and creating a successful union and uh, galvanizing support. A lot of the times, some of those people will make up part of your negotiations team, your, your team that's actually going to sit across from the employer and come up with terms. Uh, but it's not always there. It can be different. Uh, but this, again, uh, maybe, you know, get some people who are just real cold with it who have that intimidation factor when sitting across the table from uh, from the employer, you know, maybe get like, get someone who, who's got that look and maybe they could just sit there and say nothing. You know, that's, that's obviously a joke, but you know, like that's what the team's going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're and they're there to represent the membership. Right. So they're not going right. to make decisions that are out of pocket. They're not gonna fight for things that are out of pocket that don't reflect the priorities of membership. It's, um, and in some cases, some unions will do open bargaining where anyone is gonna be welcome and members can go and sit and watch and you know uh, even caucus with your negotiations teams. Uh, but you kind, of have, you kind of want to have some people who are responsible for just bottom lining some basic tasks like developing and writing up proposals um, and making it, you know, crafting the language for, that you're going to be presenting uh, with your employer and going back and forth with them on. So, um, yeah, but the, and it's just important that, that whoever's on the negotiations team, that it's as representative as possible, um, similarly to how your organizing committee should, should have been, just making sure that that way you're, you're, you're not leaving any issue um, uh, for lack of better words, un unturned, right? You want to make right. sure that as right. much as addressed as possible. Now we are, whoever's on the negotiations team is to some extent serving in a representative, compa representative capacity to the, right. the larger union. Uh, those things that they've been complaining about, the things that they want, the days off, the things that are most important to them, the, you know, it could be higher pay, but a lot of the times days off, uh, maternity leave, that stuff. That's what you're going to be negotiating here. So very important to survey the members to address, you know, to try to show the union, this is where the, you know, the rubber meets the road. All the promises that you've been making about the things that you can do as a union, this is where you actually fulfill them. Uh, so it's important. It's important to make sure you're representing the members of the union uh, and their interests correctly. It's important that they, the whoever's in that negotiations team uh, are people who 
are of that, like who who are not going to uh, lose sight of that as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you have here about like developing proposals and then getting the employer to the table. Uh, mm-hmm. let, let, let's talk a little bit about that because this is more of the meat and the potatoes of the actual uh, contracts or the actual things you're going to be asking the employer, right? How, how do you go about doing that? And what are some strategies as to uh, developing a good proposal? Yeah, I think, well, one, consulting other union contracts with other unions that are of a similar industry or uh, have a similar type of bargaining unit is important. So you can kind of see, you don't have to start, you know, reinvent the wheel or start from scratch. So, you know, taking the time to do some research around what contracts exist around certain policies out there. And thankfully, you can go to your uh, local uh, labor federation council, uh, labor councils, they often have uh, union contracts on file that you can look at and are more than happy to share those with people who are uh, who need that that information or you can just reach out to whatever union that you're working with and they're if you are working with an established union and they're happy to pull up some existing language there to kind of that to kind of lay the groundwork that you can kind of uh, tweak and adjust accordingly um, right. so consulting right. as many contracts as possible is really really important yeah, and again, don't you don't always have to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, mm-hmm. There are exactly. good examples. This is where other unions can become your friends. Uh, they should already be your friends in the perfect world, but uh, mm-hmm. there are examples and ways to to kind of figure out the the more logistic or the the <coughs> excuse me the more logistical elements of uh, uh, putting a proposal together. Uh, yeah, and found you here, have to. Oh, go ahead, please. When when you're crafting these proposals, right, you're going to have your ideal scenario, right? The the kind of North Star, what you're going to shoot for. Right. And then you're going to have things that are kind of developed as you go that you're, you're willing to accept, right? And then you're going to have things that are kind of red lines, things that are like non-negotiable, like absolutely must be included in the contract. And those things that are non-negotiables, those are the things that you and your membership would be willing to strike over, um, right. hands down, right? Or they're right. so they're so common in uh, union contracts that they absolutely should be uh, taken for granted by the employer, right? Um, so those things are kind of uh, your your red lines um, and should be, but but you kind of establish that once you figured out what through your survey what membership cares about. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the, the notes that you have on here, which I found very interesting on this, this outline we have, uh, is that the field game is important for negotiations. Uh, 100%. So would you, uh, I, I haven't actually been involved in the, the negotiation of a, of a union contract. So this field game part is mm-hmm. very interesting to me. Would you be able to expound on that a little bit? Absolutely. So, you know, first off, when you're for your first contract, your employer will probably delay wanting to get to the table uh, with you. They'll probably yeah. wait m- months God. trying to respond or set up a date to negotiate with you. And because uh, they, there's no urgency for them. The urgency is really for you. Right. Um, there's, there's no laws, unfortunately, that say you have to have 
a contract established within a year's time. Otherwise, you're getting fined up the ass, employer. Right? Like, there, it, it would be great if we had something like that. But we don't have any enforcement mechanism beyond taking collective action. And by this is where the field game comes into play is that you need to think of negotiations in a similar vein as what you did when you, after you went public with your unionization campaign, every moment, every time the employer responds to something is an opportunity for you to take collective action and respond back. Um, And so, and sometimes that means the lack of response i.e. we're not coming to the table, is going to require you all to take some type of collective action to put pressure on the employer to sit down and negotiate with you in good faith. And what this has looked like for many people is disrupting board meetings, uh, occupying certain board meetings, (laughs) uh, doing some type of demonstration outside of the CEO's office, uh, getting, getting elected officials to put pressure on the CEO or executive director to meet and negotiate in good faith. Uh, by absolutely. 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 Yeah, so, and so it, those are the things sounds, that you want to do. It, it sounds in some ways like it might be time to bring out the popcorn and plantain chips once again <laughs> to get to the boardroom and start just munching them down real, real annoying. Like, you know, just crunching them up. Just saying, hey, I've been noticing that we don't have a contract yet. What's uh, what's going on with that? Right. No, exactly. Yeah. And and that's the thing is that, you know, so long as they're not negotiating, that's just a clear sign that you can you can turn up and turn out on them, right? They're not negotiating good faith. Why should you work in good faith, right? right. So, uh, there's there's a, you know. You do have, once you negotiations start, you do have to, the sign that you're showing that you're negotiating good faith is that you're making compromises and developing and, and developing tentative agreements. And tentative agreements are, you know, you and the employer agree on the contract language as it's written temporarily um, in the moment that you've discussed it, right? That's what it means to be tentative, a tentative agreement. Um, but yeah, we you you the key here is getting the employer to the table as quickly as possible to get them in the process of negotiations so that right. way they can't back away from it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And again, one of the reasons too, this is kind of going back, but one of the reasons why we we've spoken a couple of times, uh, both on this episode and the last episode about why you want that unionization group, the group of the people who end up being the union, to be as large and broad as possible. Um, mm-hmm. The bigger it is, the more leverage you'll have in these situations. So that's right. Again, it, it is something for thirteen people to withhold their work. Uh, it's another thing if you have three hundred people across multiple departments who are withholding their work. Because that is the main mm-hmm. mechanism for forcing certain issues into a contract, for uh, getting what you want as a union uh, from your employer. The main mechanism is striking, which is just That's right. withholding your work, right? Saying yeah. uh, whatever. Now, the employer does not have to pay you during a strike. So that's where strike funds and that's where like 
finding ways, you know, to support striking workers uh, to sustain them is uh, going to be crucial. But uh, you'll see in situations where, where employers try to act big, they'll bring in like scabs, they'll bring in all kinds of people to try to do work while the workers are not are, are striking, while the workers are refusing their work. And you'll see plenty of situations where that just does not work out for them. Uh, the, the um, what's the guy, the John Deere factories, uh, mm-hmm. where they tried to do this, were, uh, so John Deere workers, I can't remember exactly where, they, they went on strike uh, and they tried to bring in scabs to basically do the work for the workers who were striking. And it was a catastrophe. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a lot of the times, this is where a lot of the uh, myths about unskilled labor completely fall apart because the people who are actually in there working and I, I don't really care what industry it is it could be the service industry it could be whatever the people who actually are on the ground doing the work know how to do the job right they they have skills and abilities that are going to be way better than shit than anyone that they try to bring in and just train uh if you've ever i don't know i don't know i, I used to work at a subway sandwich shop and mm-hmm. The, uh, the manager was always complaining about training new employees and how hard it was to train new employees and get them up to speed mm-hmm. and everything, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I made sandwiches and ran a cash register when I was new versus someone who had been there for a couple of years. Uh, leaps and bounds different, right? That's, there's, there's skill involved. There's a lot of skill involved and the, Employers want to pretend like they're not going to feel it. They're not going to feel the effects of a strike. They do. Um, but again, kind of going back, that's why you want to broaden out as many people who can be in the union as possible, because this gives you more leverage. It makes the, the employer more likely to have to come to the table because the threat that you actually pose is is greater. Yeah, well said. Well said, Brian. Yeah, so striking is the mechanism of the ultimate form uh, uh, forcing your employer to do what what uh, you need them to do and to agree, and it can be implemented at any time. Either get to the table or you know negotiate this contract or you know TA this contract, right? But the point is, though, is you know one thing to think about is you know to strike, you need at least ninety percent of everyone to vote in favor of striking, right? You, that's generally the threshold that people shoot for it because yeah. if you don't have that then you don't have a ultimate show of force um and you know and if you have people who you, you have to be ready to accept the consequences of striking which is going without pay which is right. um you know being potentially locked out of your work right That's those right. are all there are sacrifices that are made when you strike um it is not a cost neutral action but the benefits you know are to be measured should be measured and outweigh the consequences, right? In terms of what you absolutely. can actually do with it. So, yeah, absolutely. And and people, you know, you have to understand the mechanisms for the other mechanisms for the mechanisms of mechanisms. I love that you're saying for mechanism. <laughs> mechanism, 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 mechanism. <laughs> Suck my dick, Schnarf. Let's keep going. Um, uh, so okay, so we the the we're now uh, 
figuring out, okay, so we have, we're trying to, uh, we, we've got a field game going on. We are getting, disrupting board meetings. We're doing everything we can to get the people, uh, the employers to the table. Uh, let's say we get to the table. Uh, let's say we get a tentative contract, a tentative agreement of some type with the employer. What is the process now? If you are part of the negotiations team, what's the process of, you know, holy shit, we have a tentative agreement or we have some kind of understanding with the employer. We have this contract. What do you do with that contract? And how do you make that? How does a union contract become a official? So once you've reached a tentative agreement in negotiations for the entire contract, you turn around and you send that contract out to every member for them to read it over, to look it over, and then to vote either yes in favor of, uh, you know, um, uh, what's the word? I'm blanking on it. Uh, like approving it or? or yeah, approving yeah, ratify, it. Yep, yep. Ratify. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's late. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. they, they're going to ratify the contract or not. And you need a majority of people to ratify the contract in order for you to go forward and sign and agree uh, to accept those tentative agreements as the contract. Uh, so that's how it becomes official. Your union, your members say, yeah, this is something we want. This is something we can live with. This is something that actually meets our needs uh, and our dreams and our aspirations. So then we're, we're, you're, you're good to sign off on it. And then right. you'll you'll literally sign it. The employer will sign it. And then you'll usually in the course of negotiations, you'll figure out how long you want the contract to last for before you have to renegotiate. And really usually, yeah. And that's something that's strategic too. So some, some employers will uh, want to push for longer contract lengths, like five, six, seven years. Um, and the reason why is because that gives them, you, you know, you, you, you technically don't have to negotiate further or address, uh, you know, your working conditions or, you right. know, terms of employment um, until the contract is up to renegotiate. So that right. gives, if things need to change radically, they don't, they don't have to. So right. most people want to shoot I've heard some people shooting for yearly contracts, which I think is crazy. <laughs> because That's a lot. Yeah. It's so a lot. It's so a lot. The process of negotiations, y'all, is can be really, really taxing. And to organize around that constantly, year in and year out, was would it requires a lot of energy. So most people sure. shoot anywhere between two and three years is kind of like the middle ground. Uh I would say right. anything longer than three years and there better be a really strong justification for that on your part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But one thing that I, I want to mention with the, the contract length is earlier we said uh, there was nothing in the law to force you to come back to the table or to force you to initially come to the table to negotiate that first contract, that first union contract. This is where mm -hmm. it differs. Once a contract That's is right. up, there's now a legal obligation for these motherfuckers to sit back down and talk to you. So yeah. the first contract getting, so when we're talking about this finish line, why it's so important to negotiate 
and ratify your first contract is also so you can now get the, the employer on the hook to have to continue to come back to the table for subsequent contracts. So yes. This is why that is part of the finish line. Do you understand that part of the strategy now? That you have to get them on the hook to where they constantly have to come back and negotiate and negotiate. And then you're really solidifying your power as a union. Then you're actually exercising your power and, and, and you, you have some, um, some teeth uh, for future contract negotiations. Is that, is that all right, uh, Rika? That's absolutely 100% right. Awesome. I'm the best. <laughs> it's like a master class vibe. I appreciate it. It's awesome. <laughs> well, well, you know, I, I have the, the best teacher uh, being you with this. So um, great. So if the union approves and ratifies the contract, then for the time being, for the most part, celebrate again. Is that it? Do we get oh, back to the... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. More, okay. more alcohol for everyone. Yes. 100%. Okay. Well, yes. <laughs> we get back to it. Congratulations hey. again, everybody. We got to go back to it. Love it. Love it. Okay. So, so future, let's see. I, I think... I, I don't want to quite say this yet, but I am, are we forgetting anything as to the initial steps to organizing a union, getting it going, uh, getting through the election, getting your first contract negotiated? Are those like, are we forgetting anything as far as the steps as to how you do this? You know, I don't think so. I The only comment I want to say is that, you know, once you negotiate and ratify your first contract, that's when you really have your union. And then it's just about building up the kind of union culture that and hope that you've been cultivating throughout your organizing campaign and kind of maintaining yeah. it and, enfor and enforcing the contract, you know, making yeah. sure that you're, you're holding the employer accountable to the terms and conditions outlined in the contract because it's not just it's not just about your working conditions it's also about rules around what the employer can and can't do too so that's right that's a that's, that's really right. important that's right that's right um well look i feel pretty good about this uh same i there there's some law stuff i can go into maybe if we just do a, a quick run through of shit just real quick, we'll do a real quick run through just so people kind of know some of the laws around unionizing. What, what do you say? I think, I think let's hold off on that for maybe another time. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. You know, it's probably a lot to go with. Look, main things are this, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. Employers cannot like the big ones to know in just when you're starting your union. Uh, they're not allowed to discriminate against pro-union employees. That's right. Think of that very broadly. Think of it as broadly as you can. So that means they can't fire you for joining a union. They'll fire you for some other reasons because they're on that fuck shit. Uh, they're not allowed to promise benefits to you or to non-union workers that will not be given to union workers. All of that's illegal. They're not allowed to make threats. 
of about union unionization or all of that stuff okay generally just think of that but again when you're organizing the union just keep track of everything that's going on keep track of everything the employer's doing if they fire you for another reason keep track that it was after you tried to form a union or when you showed support for a union all of that um but again we are the best situation here is to win outside the courts uh nlrb has a, a little checkered history because they are part of the ex executive branch. So the people who are appointed to uh, kind of adjudicate these uh, disputes are people who are appointed by whatever political parties in power. And I don't have to tell you all that Republicans have not been very pro-labor and Democrats have not been very pro-labor because all of these people are like corporatists, okay? Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, the, the head of the NLRB right now, the NLRB is pretty pretty decent right now. But that's like, you know, saying that, I don't know, it's, it's, it's still America, okay? So we know who lobbies to get people into certain offices and everything. Just know that, like, you're trying to win this through the organization effort of the people uh, that you're actually organizing here, right? Keep your eyes on the prize. Uh, don't, uh, don't depend on the courts to save you or to save your unionization effort. Uh, I think that's enough, enough. There, it would be a lot to get into all the in particulars of the law. And frankly, y'all don't, care that much about it i'm just gonna be honest like some, I, I gotta be i gotta be real honest like look not everyone wants to become a lawyer for exactly that reason because a lot of what yeah. people do oh, look i'm just gonna be real frank a lot of what being a lawyer is is getting paid to read a bunch of shit that other motherfuckers don't want to read because they're sick okay like, no one wants to read this shit i don't want to read this dry ass book this book is dry Right. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow I got like people are willing to pay you to so, like me to know that shit. But just, you know, yeah. those yeah. are the main points. I would love to take some questions, Rika. Rika, you are, again, the best. I cannot thank you. And I thought I really can we just get some Aww. love again in the chat for for Rika, please. Some love in the chat. Aww. She is Thanks, incredible. Ryan. You've done an incredible job. This is all her idea. Rika, you came up with the idea. You pitched the show. You said, hey, I think we should do this. I think it would be great. It was all you. And this is, I have, I'm so pumped up with this episode and, and the one that we did yesterday. Again, for anyone who missed part one, don't worry. It's available on Colin. It's the same title with part one. Uh, we talk about everything leading up to the election process. Please, please use this information go fuck your boss uh like, <laughs> please fuck these motherfuckers man i am tired of these motherfuckers like please use use my knowledge i beg you right like on some uh uh whatever his name uh the guy from star wars i'm i'm a dork let's just let's get into questions rika thank you so much it's uh it's been great. Can you stick around for a bit and answer some questions? I know we've had some people. Of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, for sure. Okay, then let's get into it. Jason, uh, you are a saint for waiting as long as you have. 
go ahead and unmute yourself and uh, welcome welcome to the show. Please, if you have any questions, uh, uh, let us know what's on your mind. Okay. <laughs> All right. No question. Uh, Jason, can you unmute yourself? Are you still there? He got so excited. He he's left. out there organizing. He's organizing a union right now as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> he is, he's like, fuck this. I got everything I need. I'm doing it. Um, well, then, Jason, I'll go ahead and put you back in the queue. And for now, I'll take, I'll take Andrew for now. Hopefully, you come back from uh, your organization efforts and you can tell us about the the newly established union you have. Uh, <laughs> so Andrew, let's go. Friend of the show, Andrew. Uh, go ahead hey, and introduce yourself. Hey again. How are you doing? How are you two doing? How's it going? Uh, good. Got some uh, good. popcorn. Pretty making good. some I feel fucking great, actually. I'm... Instagram posts. Okay. Okay. That's what's up. Yeah, I, I listened to uh, a whole bunch of Hermela Aragawi's interview with um, a Haitian Canadian activist fellow, and um, there's it's just a lot of it's so concise, and a lot of it's shit people don't know about um, Haiti. Speaking of a place where there's a need for more unions, that's uh, that's definitely one of them. Um, but yeah, I was gonna ask a couple questions. Um, what are your thoughts on? worker co-ops um and also i i do think i've heard convincing cases that worker co-ops do and should play well with also having their members in a union for their excuse me for their trade um and then oh damn i forgot my second question so i'll just stick with that one for a minute okay yeah. Um, Rika, I don't know if you want to take this first or if you want me to. Well, I definitely would love to take this one because I actually worked with a group of interpreters who were independently contracted with the Minnesota Judicial Branch who hadn't received a, a meaningful raise in over 20 years. And they were struggling to figure out how to get a raise and how to meaningfully put pressure on uh the the state because they are were all independently contracted they couldn't actually form a union so one of the ideas that was floated was to form a unionized co-op and part of it the union aspect was to just hold kind of like an internal mechanism within the co-op for accountability's sake right because even within a co-op you can you know structurally uh, power can be aggregated with a group of people. Um, so it's just about maintaining some level of accountability there. Uh, right. and, and it can really help, like if you're with a union that maybe they have their own like, benefits plan or something like that, they can be kind of that ground for, for that, for your, for your actual co-op. But yeah, I'm, I'm 100% supportive of co-ops. I think that they're so important, especially in, uh, where especially for like gig economy workers uh i think it can be really really helpful or anyone that has like short-term work that uh they can't um they're not seen legally 
as uh, an employee there, but they're, but they don't actually have power like an employer. So I think it's a great mechanism. I think that, uh, you know, it, when we say co-op, there's a lot of different types of co-ops. So the co-ops I'm thinking of are worker-owned co-ops, worker-owned co-ops. I'm for those. And I think that's what I was asking about. I forgot to specify. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's great. I think worker owned co-ops amazing. And I think uh, unionized worker owned co-ops even better. (laughs) That's my thoughts. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Look, you're going to have a hard time. Uh, I, I, let me, let me be like really clear about what I'm for. I'm for democratization of just about everything. Okay. Mm -hmm. of the workplace in all ways to me good like people having more control over their lives and the things that they produce and the things that they do good so if a union within a worker co-op a worker-owned co-op makes sense to do that yeah because i don't believe in the idea that people's lives should be like uh i don't know dictated by or that they shouldn't at least have a a, a damn good say in what they do with their time their energy and uh, what they're worth. So that's generally my my reaction to that. Big claps. I'm not going to actually clap because my dogs all just fell asleep. But um, there are a lot of other I, mechanisms to wake up your dog too. By the way, <laughs> yeah. Like if one of the, if one of the like 45 other dogs on my block starts to bark, that that could do it. Um, I had, I've remembered my other question and this could honestly probably be a whole other episode, but I wonder, um, could we talk because there's been, uh, a rust an oxidization of the, the unions in the U S that are kind of legacy unions that formed in the sometime in the period of, of 1880 to, you know, the, to 1945, I guess, um, this was, you know, the, the original big union drive in the United States. And, um, you know, I think it's somewhat well known. A lot of these unions have become uh, really just kind of uh, ornamental. Like they, there are unions that have negotiated away the right to strike, for instance, the uh, and this may be more the case in um, unions in the public sector. I don't know. Um, but I think that the, you know, for instance, the, the, the Washington state ferries have their, I think they have their own union. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, public transit by water in Washington state and the workers don't have the ability to go on strike. And if, if you're a new worker, if you haven't worked there for at least like six or seven years, you don't really have a clear schedule. You may have to travel you know, way across the state to go to a work at a different ferry uh, dock at a kind of moment's notice. So, but that's just one small example. I mean, something like the Teamsters, SEIU, although SEIU seems better than some of the other more legacy unions. What, what can you all tell me about, you know, what exactly made these unions crippled in their, in their vision and in their ability or willingness to wield power. And, and, and also um, there's, there's one other thing I remembered was my actual, my second question. This is like maybe a whole other episode, but, but my actual second question was what about um, 
specific laws regarding the rail workers because the rail industry is still very unionized, but they are they have a lot more red tape around when they, are they allowed to strike and and you know Congress can actually, if I understand it, um, force them to accept a contract even even if they all vote to strike. And then their strike would technically be considered illegal. So maybe a whole other episode would be like, how have unions become so um, decrepit and also um, all the different laws that cut back the, the semi, you know, the compromise pro labor laws of the New Deal era. Woo! We're opening up a can of worms, Andrew. Andrew, you about to get me fired. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, so I, oh, where do I, where do I begin with this? Uh, so I want to be clear. I am, though I am an organizer, I am not the, um, I'm not a major labor historian, uh, but from my understanding and talking with my mentors and people who've been in the labor movement before, Right, these compromises around which we see through like things as small as like the no strike, no lockout clauses and a lot of contracts to actual laws that you've mentioned, right, Andrew? And and you know, the railroads are not the only industry. You look at a lot of healthcare workers and there are state statutes that explicitly say that like first responders can't strike, right? And stuff like that. So um yeah, there's there's been I would agree with that analysis that there have been compromises um, legally around the right to strike. And that has been at negatively at the detriment of building a militant and exercising a militant labor movement. I will say um, the compromise was uh, for spe specifically for clauses like no strike, no lockout was my understanding is that it was developed during that time in which you were talking about where labor unrest was really, really high. And it was, there were a lot of like police officers coming in to beat the shit out of workers to throw them back on the, you know, factory line in the shop floor. Right. So I think these compromises were done to prevent labor unrest, both for workers themselves and for civil society at large. And I think when you're organizing a strike, it's a lot of work. It's, a, it's just, a, it is a lot of work. And I think those compromises may have been done to, as a shortcut to, to basically say, look, we won't use our, our quote unquote nuclear bomb if you won't use yours. And that way we can continue to just uh, work here and work things out at the table because really negotiating a contract is a compromise, right? If you want to think about it in the, in the broadest uh, idea of what we're looking for. We want worker control. Ultimately, we don't just want exactly. the ability to have to negotiate. So, um, yeah. So I think I think your analysis is astute, and I would say, in my experience, this is something that is changing very much so across the labor movement. We even in my time with um, negotiations we were looking at not including no strike, no lockout clauses and just negotiating the contract without them, right? Because why should we have to guarantee that, right? Um, 
there are labor leaders who are calling for unauthorized strikes uh, at, you know, sometimes more at the local level than there are at the national level. There are people who, and, and militant rank and file members who, regardless of what labor leadership, either at the local or national level, they're, they're going to move forward and, and organize a strike, as we saw in West Virginia. So I think that this is changing and it will continue to change. And I think uh, it will be kind of a local by local, unit by unit, even industry by industry uh, on a basis in which we'll start to see these kind of changes emerge. But folks are hip and aware of how powerful the strike uh, can be, the striking tool can be to get what they need and want and are starting to come wake up to the fact that uh, we need to start utilizing that weapon more. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I think in terms of unions, generally, I think we're, uh, we're getting better at it, for sure. Right on. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, bud. Oh, I was just going to say, I agree. Just about all of that. I do think, uh, as far as why labor's, uh, labor unions lost power, uh, again, I'm not a labor historian, too, but... Uh, I do think, you know, the mob and uh, had a big, that had a lot to do with it. Um, there have been... The mob and what? Sorry, older, you broke up a the, little. The, sec, the second you Red say... Scare. The second Red Scare. Oh, yeah. So the... the uh, McCarthy the association, Right, right, right. So the association later Reagan. with like communism and all this other bullshit, that, that was a big part of it. Reagan... Uh, and Reaganomics and all that bullshit. But I, I will say uh, the the unions, this is one thing I will say, just I don't know. And, and, and Rika, I don't know if you'll agree with this too. I don't want to diminish a lot of the work that older unions have done, but older, more established institutions are easier to figure out and easier to corrupt. From Well, when I say easier, if you've been around a long time um, and eventually someone has a... a their own sort of benefit, their own benefits in mind. I mean, you could say the same about like just democracies and how they can end up being corrupted by uh, actors who are very charismatic and very self-interested. Uh, this, these things can also happen within unions that are older, that are more established. I mean, I think Jimmy Hoffa is a good example, although Jimmy Hoffa is an interesting, he's a super interesting uh, there's a lot of interesting history with that. Not all of it, which I, not any of it really, which I feel qualified to, to really talk about. But those, it's, those oh are my God, it's, it's so funny. By, when I, I remember telling my grandparents the first time that I was working for a labor union and they're from like, you know, they're from like the 1940s, right? That era. And they, um, their first thing they said to me was, uh, my grandfather in particular, I forget, he was like, so, uh, you, you got to be careful, you know? And I was like, why, why, why do I have to be careful? And he was like, and this is someone who was a part of a union, by the way, at UAW. Yep. He yep. was like, uh, you know, cause, uh, the mafia, the mafia is a real thing out here. And, uh, you know, be careful what union you're working for or whatever. And I was and I just like busted out laughing. Cause I was like, what? <laughs> like I never even would ever consider working for a mafiaized union, I guess, you know, like it, it was some real shit real back thing, in the day. Real thing. Yeah. It was yep. real. It was some real, real 
real shit. And again, I, I think, think still, right? Uh, still, but not nearly as much. Not nearly as much. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and especially with the with the new wave of unions, uh, especially these like Starbucks yeah. workers and everything, is like forget about it. Like these are just forget uh, about it. forget about it. You fucking <laughs> trying to be a fucking you. You forget about. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> a lot of these. <laughs> okay, wait. Less oh no, of a sorry. Problem now. Um, yeah, just less of a problem now. But okay. Anyway. Yeah. One. Okay. So one last. Uh, question and now you have three people behind me so i'm gonna i'm gonna pop off after this but my question is rika you mentioned the term unauthorized strike and i've heard the saying that a strike is only illegal if it is unsuccessful um (laughs) in reference to these teacher strikes and uh and perhaps the the healthcare strikes it, the okay, so the Wagner Act of 1935 codified a lot of what we've been talking about yesterday and today. With what are what's the uh, song and dance for how do you legally do a union? I think the Taft Hartley Act of 1947 mm-hmm. is kind of like the mm-hmm. anti Wagner. Uh, That's right. Act, That's if, right. If you yep. will, and mm-hmm. that uh, that one particular provision of the Taft Hartley Act was to criminalize uh, solidarity strikes. So, That's right. I wonder if you could get into what are the legal boundaries of what is a solidarity strike? Like if you uh, work at a, a Boeing plant in where, isn't there one in Ohio? Um, and, and there's a Boeing plant in Washington state that's on strike. Can the mm-hmm. Boeing plant in Ohio go on strike? I'm pretty certain that if it's across, if it's outside the company or across a different industry, like if it's outside of what you know, like the the UAW you mentioned one. That's the United Auto Workers, isn't it? Yep, yep. And then there's also like the International Brotherhood of Electricians and something I can't remember the IBEW. Um, if there's a if there's a strike within the UAW, um, I think it may be possible or or perhaps more legal. Although you might correct me if I'm wrong for another plant that has a big UAW union presence to vote to strike. But if the UAW plant goes on strike or a bunch of them go on strike and then a bunch of IBEW workers go on strike and they say, this is to support our our bre- union brethren in the UAW, that is technically illegal. So I, that was basically to criminalize any whiff of a general strike. So can you talk a little bit more about like um, what exactly constitutes an unauthorized strike generally, although – as you were just saying, um, the the last couple of points you made, I was thinking, well, actually, there would be a lot of unauthorized strikes depending on your contract. But maybe let's exclude, um, you know, no strike, no lockout contracts and just talk in the law. Where are the the boundaries? And uh, there's so many more things I want to ask you. Please do another episode together. These have both been really great, but I'll just get out of the way now because I know there's more callers. Yeah, well, I think there's a there's a difference between an illegal strike and an unauthorized strike, right? An unauthorized strike is one that, like, you know, leadership didn't sanction. And an illegal strike is something that is explicitly criminalized or, like, it's within the bounds of, like, a clause that says that you can't strike unless you have um, an unfair labor practice or whatever it is, right? So, like, Correct. The, Correct. I, I just think that, that that's important to make that distinction. So when I say unauthorized, I'm not necessarily even saying illegal. I'm saying that like the it, the 
um, union leadership hasn't called for it or there hasn't been like a vote. Uh, Correct. To, Correct. To make it yeah. So to, just to be clear, to, to some, an unauthorized strike, when we talk about unauthorized, it means union leadership has not approved of it, right? That's right. Usually union leadership comes and say, all right, we're striking. Then it's like, fuck yeah, we're all striking. But this mm-hmm. is one of those things, this is almost like an internal balance of power issue. Whenever right. the union leadership says, no, we're not gonna strike, and the workers say, fuck that, we're striking, that's an unauthorized so- strike. So strictly speaking, uh, a a union that already exists where the membership decide to strike, but the the leadership have not approved it or there hasn't been a full vote, that is a wildcat strike. Is it also a wildcat strike if a a workplace decides to strike when there is no union? There's no union. There's no contract. There's no union. There hasn't been a vote to even form a union. Is that also a wildcat strike or is that a different thing? But I don't even yeah. know if we got a name for that. Well, my, yeah, my. That's some dope shit. <laughs> well, right. I think, right. There's a general tent strike. People saying they're no longer going to work withholding their labor strike. My understanding for a wildcat strike is people who uh, are just striking without there being, with you know, within the bounds of both. <laughs> their contract not being negotiated or up, right? And or there hasn't been an authorization or approval or vote around it. Right. That's that's what I understand a wildcat strike to be. That's what was happening in West Virginia. That's my understanding. That's that's my understanding too. I mean, there is a lot of overlap between unauthorized strikes and wildcat strikes. And one thing I will yes. say about wildcat strikes is that they do I mean technically technically they would violate the Wagner Act. Yeah. Um so technically they would be illegal, but also, you know, fuck it. Uh, that's my official legal advice is, you know, <laughs> whatever. Like, so. Okay. I'm going to quote you I, on that. The one thing I want to say is that, um, you, you know, the, like your comment about the strike is only illegal if it's not successful. It's the realest thing. It's the realest thing, you know, like, yeah, like if you, if you go all out and go hard and win, uh, your consequences be damned, you know, (laughs) but I will say there are the reason why a lot of people too are reticent to, or maybe in previously have been like really reluctant to strike besides all the, you know, corruption, internal politicking, access to politicians, et cetera, right? Um, there are consequences if if you are legally held accountable for striking when you're not. And that can be everything from, like, dissolution of your union and your, your, your contract to fines, right? So, like, there's, there's real um i don't want to like make light of the fact that some people have been reticent to do it uh under the current laws is their their design that have criminalized uh something that we all should have the right to do which is to say no to work that we don't agree to um so but i think uh that's just important to put out there and I, i think it should be stated it i i agree with that as much as i do want to say fuck it uh it's good to know the laws and again they depend on the industry too there are fuck it carefully yes exactly (laughs) very carefully fuck it gently as you don't always have to fuck it hard you gotta sometimes fuck it sometimes that's not right to do 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that's how it goes. I, I will say with certain industries like the railroad workers and, um, you know, like certain first responders and the like, there are additional rules because again, that's right. and there's some justifications for some of these rules, right? Like if a house is on fire and everyone's dying inside, you don't want the firemen to be able to be like, nah, fuck it, we're on strike right now. Like to start a strike right when that's happening because then you're in this weird zone. Um, yeah, so, I feel like so, for me to be okay with that, there would have to be kind of like the whole no strike, no lockout thing. Like, if you're legally not allowed to strike, your boss should not legally be allowed to, uh, invol- you know, to not voluntarily accept the the union vote. And also, yeah. like, exactly. there should you should have significant advantages for negotiating a contract yeah. if yeah, you're not that. allowed to strike. There was also recently that ruling in, what was it, Michigan or Wisconsin? I can't fucking remember. One of those um, North Midwest states. Um, the the Supreme Court of their state ruled that healthcare workers could not quit their job depending on the circumstances of public what? health at the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that was Michigan. I ended up covering that. I think that was Michigan. It may have been Wisconsin, but it was fucking insane. Oh. It's it's one of the stupidest rulings. Like I would be oh, very worried very about silly. that going to the Supreme Court yeah. right now. Um, I can't. Anyway, I, sorry. I said I was going to hang up like four a, times. I want to yeah. let other people in. I'll I'll have to follow up on that last part at some point, Andrew, because I can't remember if that was overturned in the Supreme Court, if that was like an appellate court ruling that got overturned in the state Supreme Court. But that's I think that's how it went. But I'm I'm not sure. But that's wild. But thank you for calling in. Uh, Got a couple more people to get through. Rika, how are you doing? You doing good? I'm doing good. I will say I have about like 15, 20 more minutes I can go over. Yeah, then, that's uh, about we'll me too. To wrap it up. Okay, cool. Then we're going to go real quick. All right. Uh, all right. Schnarf has insisted he has, I think, three sound effects that he has to play for us. So, oh, thank goodness. Okay. Us... <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we go. Schnarf, oh, welcome back, baby. <laughs> Float like a butterfly, sting like a penis. That's the long and short of it. Cockfighting isn't just some kind of pissing contest. It's an acceptance of one's full humanity, exposing our most private parts and enduring excruciating pain. Most men are insecure about the size of their schlong. Facts. Facts, Narf. Facts, Narf. Yo, so, um, yeah, now on a, senior, on a serious note, like... When we were talking about the the local three, the uh, the the electricians union in the nineteen forties and fifties, they ransacked their offices. All the head people who were affiliated with communism, Marxism, socialism, anything like that, were basically blacklisted. So right. here's the thing: like that era is totally different than than what we're experiencing right now because. Well, the good news is that America is no longer apple pie, Chevrolet, hanging black people and, you know, nuclear testing and blowing the, the, the fucking remains onto people. So it's a little bit sh- it's a little bit different now, right. I think. And the difference is, is that, like, you can have those kind of opinions. But at the end of the day, what I think is interesting is, is like. I think the European unions are a lot more successful than the American ones. And the reason why yes. they're more successful is they build a broader coalition and I think the worst the, 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 the worst thing that I've seen is this kind of doubling down on the local 
Um, I think people are approaching it like politics and they shouldn't. What they should approach it as is building the, the, the broadest coalition that can negotiate the best. One of the downsides, I think, of the rail workers strike was the fact that they, they did have a situation like that. They were so fragmented that they didn't get the full leverage. And I think the people that were that were arbitra not arbitrating, but the people that were negotiating on their behalf, they, they weren't so great. Um, I think that's another thing that people have to be held accountable for. But I don't think any of that is going to be successful Railroad. until until you break your nose, break a wrist, a couple fingers, right. maybe somebody else's nose, and then kind of get to that point. We're like 100 years behind. Oh, I, I agree with like, just about everything about that, uh, including the cockfighting uh, sound bit. The one thing I will say is um, when you're talking about the railway workers, you're talking about the American railway workers because there was. Yeah, a, I'm talking uh, about I'm talking about what happened right now. Like literally, right. here, here's a funny thing: we're they're they're up against Warren Buffett, right? Like all the right. like these right. vast majority of these companies are all owned by other companies. They've they've enjoyed a, a, a fucking huge, huge profit during COVID, right? And the yeah. other thing is with them is that there's only so much that can go by rail, right? The pre the preference is to always ship shit either by trucks or by by like by air, but like rail, there's only certain things that just have to go that way. So the market share doesn't grow, right? So the only way a company like that can 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 earn more profits is by basically fucking their employers. I mean their employees. What they do is they essentially lay people off put most of the work on those employees and then they don't do anything in terms of wages or benefits or time off. They just work them to death. Um, right, 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 right. That's where, that's where I think the federal government really, I think, I think had this been years ago, the federal government would have stepped in on their behalf, but we basically gutted our federal government. So we don't have that. Like I said, we're a hundred years behind and I, I don't know. That that's basically it. But good luck. I I I love this, especially the point about. I do think a really great follow up episode, Rika, would be uh, doing a cross comparison on European unions versus American unions and showing just how how much more power they have because of how they see themselves as more of a collective unit of all workers of all people who mm -hmm. are against capital. Right. Like there, there is a we've talked a lot about building out the broadest coalition that you possibly can, how where leverage comes from. And we've also talked about how employers use a divide and conquer strategy, delay, divide and conquer part of that div division strategy. Now, we understand different people do different tasks and they want to sort of you want to make sure that uh, whatever work you're doing is represented. And sometimes it makes more sense for you with your union to. Uh, in some ways, like uh, some unions are going to be smaller than others or whatever because of how particular your tasks are or whatever. But I do think that the degree to which unions are seen as hyper-local, as small groups of people, as, you know, super specialized groups, which are not part of a broader coalition that's fighting against capital itself. I think that's where you can really end up getting fucked over and it becomes much easier to defeat unions that are like that again like look it's this is should be a bigger sort of movement a bigger understanding of of 
unions are basically a method of expanding the whole net of people who can challenge capital. And I like that thought process a lot. Rika, I'd be really interested to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, I mean, I I think it certainly feels, and from what I read, like European unions um, are more militant and yes. have a willingness to be more militant and have a history of being more militant. And therefore, they're probably feared more by their employers, right? And uh, and I think there's also broader support for unions, uh, generally speaking, in European societies. So I, I'm sure that's why they're stronger and probably yeah. maybe, maybe dare to say better. I am so unexperienced uh, and so literally uninformed about <laughs> the history of European unions and comparison to the United States. And while I do think it would be a very interesting episode, um, I am, I don't know if that would be my area of expertise. That's for sure. No, it's too late. You have to be on the show. Um, <laughs> you are now the resident expert of unions here. Gonna give me all this it, homework yeah. to do. I, you know, I, know, I listen. Right? I know I'm not going back to college. I'm not going back to school. I'm <laughs> done. I'm done. I'm a, I'm doing the hard knock life yeah. shit. That's what I'm doing. I hear yes. that. I hear yeah. that. Okay, we got about maybe like what ten more minutes left. Let's try to get yeah. some people. Okay, Shelly, front of the show. What's up? How Shelly. you doing? Music. It'll take too much time. Okay. Okay, but I love you. <laughs> Uh, of course. Well, I mostly just wanted to say hi and thanks again, both of you, for sitting here and producing another wonderful episode, um, talking about unions. I think it was really great. I didn't get to, I didn't get to listen to all of it, but I will happily, as soon as you post it by it, I will happily go back and listen to the portion that I missed. But yay! I just wanted to thank you guys so much for doing all that. Well, and thank then you. Also, yeah, and then also, I do think that the comparison between the European unions and the Western unions is a pretty, I think it would be an interesting conversation. Like the comparisons, the history, who was leading those unions, what type of laws were enacted over there. I do think that that would be a super interesting, and I'm trying to think if I can, if I can think of anyone that would be a good labor historian for that. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be really great. I mean, one of my, one of my favorites to go to, for almost all things, is a guy called Gabriel Rockhill. Gabriel Rockhill, okay. But he, I don't, he's he's kind of more, he's a little bit more interested in like cultural studies, but he, he does have, have a really good grasp on like World War II's rise of fascism, like all this other type of stuff. And I feel like okay. yeah. he would just be a good person to talk to, any, but I can't think of like what specific labor historian, because kind of like what Brie showed on her Bad Faith show, you know, you had the guy that was a little bit timid. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Well, historians, you know, it's it's the it's funny. A lot of the people that I, even I studied with in college, uh, some of them were labor historians, uh, and they focused on uh, you know the civil rights movement and sort of black labor. And and the funny thing is, you'd never really know it uh, from being in their <laughs> classes that they were even involved in labor because there was like a 
you know, there there is sometimes a separation between like the academics and the people who are like, let's take this shit right here and let's let's like do something with it. Like oh, this information that we have is is worth doing something about. The reason I want to know is so I have instructions and like a guideline to do something. So, um, but if anyone has any suggestions for good labor historians or anything like that, uh, I will let them know that I have a uh, a Colin show. <laughs> See, I mean, you never know who's going to show up. Thing. I mean, yeah, he doesn't. Like the guy, the, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like most of the labor historians that I know are pretty yeah. anti-commie. Yeah, yeah, it's and weird. You can't, you really can't tell the history of American, the American labor movement without adding in the communists. Well, well absolutely. Especially it, it when, it com- when it comes to um, destroying uh, the people, I mean, Sharf was saying it earlier, a lot of the people who were targeted the most in a lot of these labor unions were the, those who were most militants those who thought of labor unions as a broader, not just as a, uh, an ends in and of themselves, but as a, as a means to an ends of something greater, uh, a power structure that needed to be changed, a, a uh, sort of a lessening of, of the building of a movement that actually challenged capital itself. Um, yeah, yeah, so. I, I mean, I agree. And that's, that's kind of my thing. I, can't, I really can't think of a popular labor historian that is not also an anti-communist. It, it, well, maybe maybe I can do something to to jog your memory a little bit. Just let's let's sit here and see if we can think for just a little bit together. God fucking damn it! Are you are you getting any memories? Are, are your memories coming back, Shelley? <laughs> Can I can. I mean, yes. It's only it's only bringing them me the memories of the Soviet and the Chinese revolutionaries. That's right. <laughs> I, I can't memories, remember baby. an American communist revolutionary. <laughs> oh, those are those are memories that make me want to just arise and break right. the enemy's fire, baby. All right. Let's Every hear time from, I get the memory. I love you. I love you guys. I love you. Let's hear from Bye bye. Thanks, Ellie. Bye. Bye. Fahim. Welcome back. What's happening? Oh, Fahim, go ahead and unmute yourself. Are you still there? Oh, no. Oh, no, Fahim. Rika, I told you I met Fahim in real life. Did I, did yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. So cool. So it was, cool. It was awesome. Yeah, he's the best. He's a really nice guy. Uh, it was so nice. He drove up, like, I don't know, something like two hours to come see me in Long Beach. It was so cool. And we just ate tacos. That's amazing. I love that. Uh, well, sorry, Fahim. I don't know if you need to update the app, too, because that happened the other day. Um, I did not see his dog, but his dog looks like the sweetest thing ever. Um, Aww. Yeah, I, we were actually going to go out and, like, hang out after, but he had the dog to get back to, too. So, uh, but it was great. It was really, really nice. We had the best conversation. It was it was fun. It was fun. So, um, cool. you all, if we meet up in real life, y'all, y'all have Fahim to live up to. Uh, no, no pressure. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Fahim. Uh, maybe if you call back in or something, we'll we'll see. Uh, but in the interest of time, uh, I'll just say, uh, love you, dog, and uh, call back in if you can. But let's go on to Amanda. Amanda, what's up? Go ahead and unmute yourself. Oh, what's up? I'm going Hi, to wrap it all up. Thank you, Rika. Yeah. Thank you, Bide. Thank wrap you up, so baby. much. 
So first things first, you are not the only person who's met somebody live in live in person and uh, from Colin, Omar, That's true. and Stoopy and I have all gotten together now. Get, get we the fuck out! Yep, and we went to an anti-war protest, and we've okay. been on the strike yeah, line you were, with you were mental about health it. care workers. Right. You were so, you were talking about the anti-war pro protest on your um your Colin um, show, which is a crowdsourcing yeah. the revolution. You should all go over there and make sure you are uh, subscribed to that or checking in with that. Okay. Amanda does a lot of really great on the ground work. Uh, you remind me a bit of on the ground, uh, like a cooler. <laughs> Like a cooler version of like Jordan Cheriton with with some wow, recording that you've done. Wow! Thank you. So. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. Thank you very much. The other thing yeah. I wanted to bring in is the rail strike. So there's still two. So there's a total of seven uh, rail, uh, six railroads, and like thirteen unions. And the two unions with the largest numbers of memberships are still in their voting process. I think the deadline's coming up for one of the bigger ones. So so they have not gone on strike yet. They are they got that tentative agreement from Biden and like a few of the unions like immediately signed, but they were very small memberships. There's still a greater than 60% of the number of employees that are represented by unions that work for railroads that are still not under their contract because they're doing their signing. And one of the unions has rejected their agreement. That's right. That's right. So th there, there's a so, chance that this, this tentative agreement that Biden had come up with with the railway workers uh, is going to end up being rejected by more than just this one union um, or this one, correct. I guess, subset correct. of the union. So uh, th there could be, right. and again, I, I just, Generally speaking, uh, if they go on strike, I think that is a good time for people who have been talking about a general strike. I think pushing that a little bit would be pretty cool. Yes. But anyway, keep going. So that's the other thing I wanted to bring your attention is that in, on, in Oakland this, this Saturday and possibly in other locations, there's a solidarity rally for railroad workers. Oh, and cool. and um, it's at three o'clock at the Port of Oakland Shoreline Park. If somebody's listening to this on October twenty second, at three p.m. But this is this is um, sponsored. The initial endorsers are, of this are the Transport Workers Solidarity Committee, Amazon Workers Network Bay Area, Workers World Party, and the United Front Committee for a Labor Party. Now, the United Front Committee for a Labor Party. I spoke to the person who's the head of that and just the other day, because he was, of course, at the anti-war protest, and he's going to be at this thing Saturday. I can talk to him because he did seem to have a pretty good um, perspective on on labor union history. So I can I can query him and see if that's something he's interested in talking about. I've already talked to him about Colin, so there's a possibility for you. So those are my three okay. comments and I'm going to sign off because I don't need to do something long. Those were my messages. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks, much. Amanda. Amanda. And, and again, everyone here should definitely be tuned into Amanda's uh, call-in show, crowdsourcing the revolution. It's great. Uh, she's always got, there, there's always people in there who have a lot of good things to say. Uh, it's, it's one of those rooms where you can learn a lot if you, 
find yourself with some time to listen and the on the ground reporting. Uh, I don't know if I know anyone else on Colin who knows uh, actual real life events that are going on that they will be attending more than uh, than Amanda. So it's it's really I really appreciate it as someone who either works from home or in my office, just dreaming about where I could be. Uh, I I live vicariously through Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Uh, no, I, I've been informed by a lot of things by by that, so it, it's really great. Um, Rika, I we've done it. We we did we it. did the thing. We did the damn thing. Do you have any final words of wisdom? Anything else you'd like to say? Uh, share with the people. Uh, no, I just want to thank you, by for hosting this and for taking me up on this idea and I, you know, really just was sitting there listening to often uh, Reese Collins and people just feeling like, I don't know, confused or lost or not sure what to do and kind of feeling frustrated with the midterm elections and the political process. And I really thought this would just be an opportunity to lay pretty, you know, brass tacks, what what to do and how to do it if you want to do something that could really affect and change your 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 personal life and the lives of people around you so i hope that that even though maybe some of this might have been uh a little uh boring for some people in terms of those brass tacks although bide i think you do an amazing job (laughs) and all of keeping things entertaining um i it's just a lot of just dick jokes basically (laughs) That's my go-to, baby. So absolutely, Dick, dicks and asses, dicks and asses, and sometimes <laughs> together. I feel like right. you know we we. I just hope that people can take something valuable from this, and I just want to say thank you. That's all. Uh, my thanks, all my thanks to you. Uh, I think it's a great idea. I think I I think between this episode and the last one. Uh, if there's anyone out there who wanted to at least was like curious about a union, uh, about how you go about it, didn't know where to start. I think there's a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, I, I really hope that people just take away, uh, if there's anything that they can take away, just take away the fact that like, uh, there are mechanisms to challenge power. They, there are there. They are there, right? <laughs> yeah, fuck you too, Sharp. <laughs> but there really are, okay. Uh, and we, we have the ability to help each other to discover those processes and guide each other through them. And and you have the ability to actually take the information that's out there and actually do something. There is a power wants you to think that you can do nothing. It always, it is always advantageous to power to make you feel powerless. And Mm -hmm. here's the thing, even if you do feel powerless, test the theory. Like, let's see, let's see, let's see. You know, uh, we, there's only so much shit like 
look like I, I just think I think there's a lot of power to a lot of people who felt powerless to suddenly getting together and being emboldened and somehow starting from a snowball going into a big snow boulder and then becoming that snow thingy you know get into that thing I I think that's really cool I think that's really valuable and I want to see more of it please if anyone is inspired by these podcasts to like try this shit out we would love to hear it I for whatever this little call-in show is uh we will do a whole episode on it I do not care I think that's fucking sick I think that would be the sickest shit like ever. Um, I would, I would buy you dinner. I would, <laughs> I would do whatever. <laughs> I, I'd be in awe. I'd be in awe of it. So uh, again, thank you all for joining. If you're listening later, I hope you've gotten a lot out of this. Any final thoughts, Rika? Any last, last thing, any sign off? We have nothing to lose but our chains. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, I'm into that. All right, y'all. Well, then I'll play you out with uh, how we played you in. This is uh, There is Power in a Union by Billy Bragg. Another suggestion for Rika. And uh, I hope you find that power in the union yourselves. Oh!